Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 8 The End of the World Part 3 It is said truly, in a sense, that Pan died because Christ was born. It is almost as true, in another sense, that men knew that Christ was born because Pan was already dead. A void was made by the vanishing of the whole mythology of mankind, which would have asphyxiated like a vacuum if it had not been filled with theology. But the point for the moment is that the mythology could not have lasted like a theology in any case. Theology is thought, whether we agree with it or not. Mythology was never thought, and nobody could really agree with it or disagree with it. It was a mere mood of glamour, and when the mood went, it could not be recovered. Men not only ceased to believe in the gods, but they realized that they had never believed in them. They had sung their praises, they had danced round their altars, they had played the flute, they had played the fool. So came the twilight upon Arcady and the last notes of the pipe sound sadly from the beechen grove. In the great Virgilian poems there is already something of the sadness, but the loves and the household gods linger in lovely lines like that which Mr. Belloc took for a test of understanding. In quipe parve puer risu cognacere matrum, that is, begin, little boy, to recognize your mother with a smile. But with them, as with us, the human family itself began to break down under servile organization and the herding of the towns. The urban mob became enlightened. That is, it lost the mental energy that could create myths. All round the circle of the Mediterranean cities, the people mourned for the loss of gods and were consoled with gladiators. And meanwhile, something similar was happening to that intellectual aristocracy of antiquity that had been walking about and talking at large ever since Socrates and Pythagoras. They began to betray to the world the fact that they were walking in a circle and saying the same thing over and over again. Philosophy began to be a joke. It also began to be a bore. That unnatural simplification of everything into one system or another which we have noted as the fault of the philosopher, revealed at once its finality and its futility. Everything was virtue, or everything was happiness, or everything was fate, or everything was good, or everything was bad. Anyhow, everything was everything, and there was no more to be said. So they said it. Everywhere the sages had degenerated into sophists that is, into hired rhetoricians or askers of riddles. It is one of the symptoms of this, that the sage begins to turn not only into a sophist, but into a magician. A touch of oriental occultism is very much appreciated in the best houses. As the philosopher is already a society entertainer, he may as well also be a conjurer. Many moderns have insisted on the smallness of that Mediterranean world and the wider horizons that might have awaited it with the discovery of the other continents. But this is an illusion. 
one of the many illusions of materialism. The limits that paganism had reached in Europe were the limits of human existence. At its best, it had only reached the same limits anywhere else. The Roman Stoics did not need any Chinamen to teach them Stoicism. The Pythagoreans did not need any Hindus to teach them about recurrence, or the simple life, or the beauty of being a vegetarian. Insofar as they could get these things from the East, they had already got rather too much of them from the East. The syncretists were as convinced as theosophists that all religions are really the same. And how else could they have extended philosophy merely by extending geography? It can hardly be proposed that they should learn a purer religion from the Aztecs, or sit at the feet of the Incas of Peru. All the rest of the world was a welter of barbarism. It is essential to recognize that the Roman Empire was recognized as the highest achievement of the human race, and also as the broadest. A dreadful secret seemed to be written as in obscure hieroglyphics across those mighty works of marble and stone, those colossal amphitheaters and aqueducts. Man could do no more. For it was not the message blazed on the Babylonian wall that one king was found wanting or his one kingdom given to a stranger. It was no such good news as the news of invasion and conquest. There was nothing left that could conquer Rome. But there was also nothing left that could improve it. It was the strongest thing that was growing weak. It was the best thing that was going to the bad. It is necessary to insist again and again that many civilizations had met in one civilization of the Mediterranean Sea, that it was already universal, with a stale and sterile universality. The peoples had pulled their resources, and still there was not enough. The empires had gone into partnership, and they were still bankrupt. No philosopher who was really philosophical could think anything except that, in that central sea, the wave of the world had risen to its highest, seeming to touch the stars. But the wave was already stooping, for it was only the wave of the world. That mythology and that philosophy into which paganism has already been analyzed had thus both of them been drained most literally to the dregs. If, with the multiplication of magic, the third department, which we have called the demons, was even increasingly active, it was never anything but destructive. There remains only the fourth element, or rather the first, that which had been in a sense forgotten because it was the first. I mean the primary and overpowering yet impalpable impression that the universe, after all, has one origin, and one aim, and, because it has an aim, must have an author. What became of this great truth in the background of men's minds at this time, it is perhaps more difficult to determine. Some of the Stoics undoubtedly saw it more and more clearly as the clouds of mythology cleared and thinned away, and great men among them did much, even to the last, to lay the foundations of a concept of the moral unity of the world. The Jews still held their secret certainty of it jealously behind high fences of exclusiveness. Yet it is intensely characteristic of the society and the situation that some fashionable figures, especially fashionable ladies, actually embraced Judaism. 
But in the case of many others, I fancy there entered at this point a new negation. Atheism became really possible in that abnormal time. For atheism is abnormality. It is not merely the denial of a dogma. It is the reversal of a subconscious assumption in the soul. The sense that there is a meaning and a direction in the world it sees. Lucretius, the first evolutionist who endeavored to substitute evolution for God, had already dangled before men's eyes his dance of glittering atoms, by which he conceived cosmos as created by chaos. But it was not his strong poetry, or his sad philosophy, as I fancy, that made it possible for men to entertain such a vision. It was something in the sense of impotence and despair, with which men shook their fists vainly at the stars, as they saw all the best work of humanity sinking slowly and helplessly into a swamp. They could easily believe that even creation itself was not a creation but a perpetual fall, when they saw that the weightiest and worthiest of all human creations was falling by its own weight. They could fancy that all the stars were falling stars, and that the very pillars of their own solemn porticos were bowed under a sort of gradual deluge. To men in that mood, there was a reason for atheism that is, in some sense, reasonable. Mythology might fade, and philosophy might stiffen. But if behind these things there was a reality, surely that reality might have sustained things as they sank. There was no God. If there had been a God, surely this was the very moment when he would have moved and saved the world. The life of the great civilization went on with dreary industry, and even with dreary festivity. It was the end of the world, and the worst of it was that it need never end. A convenient promise had been made between all the multitudinous myths and religions of the empire, that each group should worship freely, and merely live a sort of official flourish of thanks to the tolerant emperor, by tossing a little incense to him under his official title of Divus. Naturally, there was no difficulty about that. Or rather, it was a long time before the world realized that there ever had been even a trivial difficulty anywhere. The members of some eastern sect or secret society or other seemed to have made a scene somewhere. Nobody could imagine why. The incident occurred once or twice again, and began to arouse irritation out of proportion to its significance. It was not exactly what these provincials said, though of course it sounded queer enough. They seemed to be saying that God was dead, and that they themselves had seen him die. This might be one of the many manias produced by the despair of the age. Only, they did not seem particularly despairing. They seemed quite unnaturally joyful about it, and gave the reason that the death of God had allowed them to eat him and drink his blood. According to other accounts, God was not exactly dead after all. There trailed through the bewildered imagination some sort of fantastic procession of the funeral of God, at which the sun turned black but which ended with the dead omnipotence breaking out of the tomb and rising again like the sun. But it was not the strange story to which anybody paid any particular attention. People in that world had seen queer religions enough to fill a madhouse. It was something in the tone of the madmen, 
and their type of formation. They were a scratch company of barbarians, and slaves, and poor, and unimportant people. But their formation was military. They moved together, and were very absolute about who and what was really a part of their little system, and about what they said. However, mildly, there was a ring like iron. Men used to many mythologies and moralities could make no analysis of the mystery, except the curious conjecture that they meant what they said. All attempts to make them see reason in the perfectly simple matter of the emperor's statue seemed to be spoken to deaf men. It was as if a new meteoric metal had fallen on the earth. It was a difference of substance to the touch. Those who touched their foundation fancied they had struck a rock. With a strange rapidity, like the changes of a dream, the proportions of things seemed to change in their presence. Before most men knew what had happened, these few men were palpably present. They were important enough to be ignored. People became suddenly silent about them and walked stiffly past them. We see a new scene, in which the world has drawn its skirts away from these men and women and they stand in the center of a great space like lepers. The scene changes again, and the great space where they stand is overhung on every side with a cloud of witnesses. Interminable terraces full of faces looking down towards them intently, for strange things are happening to them. New tortures have been invented for the madmen who have brought good news. That sad and weary society seems almost to find a new energy in establishing its first religious persecution. Nobody yet knows very clearly why that level world has thus lost its balance about the people in its midst. But they stand unnaturally still, while the arena and the world seem to revolve round them. And there shone on them in that dark hour a light that has never been darkened a white fire clinging to that group like an unearthly phosphorescence, blazing its track through the twilights of history and confounding every effort to confound it with the mists of mythology and theory. That shaft of light, or lightning, by which the world itself has struck and isolated and crowned it, by which its own enemies have made it more illustrious and its own critics have made it more inexplicable. The halo of hatred around the church of God. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.